All right, let's go to Hebrews 6. Uh, let me read some verses 13 to 23 to give your attention to God's word. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, Lord. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness and faithfulness to this congregation, and I thank you just for this opportunity to worship and praise and to now sit under your word. I pray, God, that all, Lord, here tonight would just hear clearly. Uh, I, I confess the ways that I am uh, weak, and, and if anything, I, I just get in the way of your message, but the Holy Spirit... Uh, Make me small and uh, hide me behind the cross so that uh, our eyes are lifted to see Jesus and we hear from you. And we walk away uh, emboldened, uh, we walk away hopeful, we walk away feeling rested, uh, we walk away encouraged and built up by your life giving work. So we lift this time up to you, we commit it into your hands. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, have you ever been asked if you are a right brain user or a left brain user? Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, um, of course, the question can come off offensively. I use all of my brain, um, <laughs> not just a part of it. But, but if you've taken like anything like Psychology 101 uh, in college or anything like that, you know that there are two hemispheres of the brain. Uh, the left side is uh, left side is used primarily for things like analysis and reason and logic, right? And so they say those who use the left side tend to be like the scientists, the engineers, the mathematicians. Um, and then they say the right side of the brain is for those who are more uh, into the visual, you know, sensory processes, um, which of which the the right side is used to, to sort of interpret emotion and humor and metaphor. And so those who are uh, you know artsy, the creative types. Uh, musicians, artists, writers, all those, they use the right side of the brain. And uh, I just bring that up because I think it's fascinating, and I'm just so marveled at how God works in, in that when he created us and he created humanity, he created us with both sides of the brain. So we're meant to use both the right and the left side. Um, and, I, and I'm stunned by that because when God reveals himself in the scriptures, uh, he appeals to both the left and the right side. So the left side of the brain, the more analytical, the logical. If you look at something like the epistles, uh, God reveals himself in propositions and arguments that we can take apart and we can analyze. And um, so, you know, I know that I think Mitchell right now is going through Ephesians, um, which they started not too long ago. 
And I think Pastor Donna, you told me you guys were going to finish Ephesians in 2021 or something like that. Um, but, you know, the, the epistles, you can do that. You can slow down and, and you can understand the logic and, oh, this sentence and, or these verbs and these words. And it fits in the context of sentences and, and then, you know, paragraphs and chapters and whole books. And then on the other hand, God gives us poems and love songs and uh, prophecies and, and wisdom sayings. And, and in this way, God speaks through images and he communicates these, these amazing, you know, complex truth through simple images. And, and I think that's important because sometimes um, we don't need a whole theological argument. We, sometimes we just need an image or a picture, and I think God gives us that. And so sometimes your heart can just kind of grasp onto a single image. It can make a world of a difference. You know, think back at your childhood. I mean, do you remember conversations and dialogues, or do you remember pictures and images and scenes? God speaks to us. He gives us images to hold on to. So the book of Hebrews gives us so many images. Actually, if you go back and you kind of start from the beginning, one very important image is the Word of God is like a, does anyone know this? Say it if you know it. I take back everything I was saying about it. this Now, the word of God is like a double-edged sword or a two-edged sword, right? That pierces and divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow, right? Between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And you get this image that God... Uh, on the one hand, it's like this great surgeon, and he uses the word of God to, to sort of pierce your heart. But in order to heal, right, in order for a surgeon to heal, he must always cut first. And so you see a way that the word of God is healing. But on the other hand, you also see the word of God like this sword, and a warrior holds the sword. So if you read the Bible and you reject his message, that's actually God's judgment coming down upon you. And so you got these images of the sword. And then, you know, later on in uh, Hebrews, uh, the author gives us this image of being crowned with glory and honor. And it's this beautiful, rich, royal imagery uh, that says, you know, that you come into God's house in poor beggars' garbs, but he adorns you with jewelry and a crown and riches. And, you know, you are kingly. You are royal. You sit at the table feasting with the God most high. At that image, he gives us this image. It's, this image is a rebuking one. He says, some of you Christians are so immature, right? You're so immature. You think you're mature, but you're immature because when you should be eating solid food, you're just drinking milk. And the whole imagery there is meant to show you just kind of the absurdity of someone who's an adult who claims to be mature but is infantile in faith. And so just kind of imagine going into... Um, you know, the dining hall at your school or into break room and you see, you know, a grown adult drinking milk from a bottle and, you know, um, slipping burgers. <laughs> and it's just not, you know, the, the, these images, they're, they're very uh, important. They become very powerful. And I bring that up because when we get to Hebrews 6, yes, this is an epistle, but there's an image. And I think if you could just walk away with this is one image, then I will have done my job. And this image is of a sure and steadfast anchor. Right? Anchor. The anchor of the soul. The Bible is saying that God gives to us this anchor so we can have certainty in his promises. And the Bible is saying that if you have this anchor, it doesn't matter how strong the waves are in your life. It doesn't matter how dark the night sky is. It doesn't matter how cold the air is. When you have this anchor, you can rest in his promises. You can have 
faith, real, really confidently rest in his goodness and faithfulness. So we're going to look at four things in this passage. We're going to look at, uh, the, just there's more four, four headings. Behind the curtain, security of our hope, the anchor of our soul, and Jesus our forerunner. All right, so if you're tracking with me, let's start here. Behind the curtain, look with me at verse 19. It says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And the author of Hebrews is writing this, that the Christian hope, the hope that you and I have, is a hope that takes us somewhere. It leads us somewhere. Where does that hope lead us? Well, the ESV says the inner place behind the curtain. Uh, the NASB, another translation, says within the veil. Some of you may be using the NIV, says the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. So we're going to explain what that means behind the curtain later, but the point for now is for you to pause and realize that the nature of God's promise is like this. When you have faith, when you have hope, it doesn't leave you where you are, but it takes you somewhere. You have a destination, and this is one of the fundamental tenets of the Christian gospel. Every Christian, every believer is journeying, is so journeying. They're headed somewhere. This life is not it. We are going somewhere. We have not yet arrived. But we are going. And that's so important because if you don't believe that your hope is taking you somewhere, then you are just utterly hopeless. Now let me give you an example of what I mean. A few years ago, uh, actually, I was, when I was thinking about this, some of you may have gone with me on this trip. Um, but I, I, I took a group of students when I was in college, Main Street, down to Washington, D.C., to see the uh, Cherry Blossom Festival. Um, but it was like so cold, so you know, nothing was blossoming. So what do we do? We went to the Natural uh, History Museum. Um, so we go in, we're, we're walking around, uh, having a great time, everyone's hungry, you know, oh, let's go eat. So we leave, we're walking out. If you know what that area of DC looks like, you come out and there's this like huge like field in, in, in the middle, and we just start walking and everyone's hungry and we're all yelping and you know, back then bite wasn't out, out yet, but uh, it had been, it definitely been it. Uh, So we're walking and everyone's hungry and uh, somebody says, you know, where's this person? Um, well, John, so that's a comedy. Where's John? Like, where is John? And we look back, and John is like half a mile down, right still at the entrance. Uh, and we're looking in, and we see that he's talking to somebody. And so, instead of having a whole group, I was like, oh, you know, I'll go get him. So, I go find John, and it turns out that, um, you know, when he came out, that there was a group of uh, Hare Krishnas, um, and sort of he somehow like got trapped by one. We just kept walking, <laughs> and we left him behind. And uh, he was having this conversation, and as I walk over, you know, I'm trying to be polite, and the guy has his pamphlet, and he's explaining what they believe, uh, which is basically the cycle of birth and rebirth and, and how to escape that vicious cycle through chanting. And, um, and you know, so, so I say, you know, sir, you know, I, I don't mean to you know, interrupt, but, you know, we're Christians, we don't believe this. I'm trying to be nice, you know, Christ-like. We're Christians, just, we don't believe this. Um, but then he says something really interesting. He goes, oh yeah, oh, goes, that's perfect. He says, don't you know that the Bible teaches reincarnation? Sure. <laughs> he said, yeah. Elijah was reincarnated as John the Baptist. The Bible teaches reincarnation. And I looked at him and I was like, what version are you reading? <laughs> I bet it's the NIV. <laughs> it's the needs improvement version. <laughs> I use the elect standard version. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Don't go this. Um, but you know, this guy was, was evangelizing. He was evangelizing, being patient, and 
Um, you gotta remember the most important detail of this whole story is that uh, we were on the way to lunch. Um, <laughs> so I was so hungry. Thinking, <laughs> man, you poked the wrong bear. <laughs> and so you know, I began to engage him, and I don't know about you, but. Um, you know, that adrenaline takes over, you got that fight or flight, right? And I was ready to fight theologically with words. Uh, and, you know, I heard what he said, and I was ready to, like, you know, get in this with him. Uh, and But as he just, you know, kept talking and talking, you know, to, to be honest, like, all of that adrenaline just left my body because my heart was just so sad for him. Because upon listening to him and listening to what he believes, and I mean, at the end of the day, you know what it is? It's it's life is a cycle, and, and you achieve a better birth cycle, and a new, you know, enlightened, uh, it's the, a new state of enlightenment the more you chant, and then you die, and then you're reincarnated, and you keep doing that until you finally, you know, hopefully get to a better place. And I remember the end of that, um, I just asked him, I said, so, like, are you sure you know where you'll end up? And after explaining all that, he looked at me, and he goes, No. No. I said, well, do you know that you're going to be reincarnated in a higher state? He said, maybe. And it just really saddened my soul because, I mean, just his hope wasn't taking him anywhere. I mean, it was a cycle and over and over again. It's basically like running on a treadmill, right? You're expending all this energy, lots and lots of energy, lots and lots of work, lots and lots of movement. Where are you going? Nowhere. That's why I don't exercise. <laughs> you see, his hope didn't have a destination. It was based on all this performance. I have to do this. I, have to, I can never rest. I need to constantly chant and then do this, and I need to attain a better thing. But where do you end up? There was no hope. And so Christianity comes along. It's such a different message. The hope that you have is taking you somewhere. So when Jesus comes in John 14, he has that beautiful promise where he's saying, you know, like, I'm leaving. And we're like, Jesus, don't leave. And he says, I'm leaving to prepare a room for you in my Father's house. I'm going to make the bed. So that when you come to my Father's house, you have a place to sleep. To live in a karmic system of doing better, and, and, and hopefully, maybe, one day you will get somewhere, is utterly, not only is it uncertain, but it's hopeless. It's discouraging. Who wants faith like that? So let me ask you, you know, the things that you hope in, the things you are placing hope in, is it taking you somewhere? The things you hope in, is it taking you somewhere? What are the things you're hoping in? Where do you think it's taking you? What is your greatest hope? What are you trusting in? For a lot of us, it's, it's, it's riches, you know, it's, it's money, it's, it's a raise. These are the things we hope in. But my question is, like, will money make you who you want to be and take you where you need to go? And for some of you, it's your reputation. It's what people think about you. It's, it's what people uh, say about you. But is your reputation and, and, and your fame or people's thoughts, is that making you who you want to be and taking you where you need to go? For some of you, it's a relationships. It's about friendships. Or some of you, it's about lovers. And it's about... Boyfriends, girlfriends, it's about spouses, but are those people making you who you want to be and taking you where you need to go? You have to remember the context of Hebrews. So what's Hebrews about, or who is it being written to? It's being written to Christians who are suffering, 
Right? They're under persecution by the Roman government. So they're asking this question as they're suffering, as they're being persecuted. They're asking the question, is this worth it? Is this hope worth it? Is this gospel worth it? Why should I hold on to my faith? What is Christianity doing for me? Where is this promise taking me? And so maybe some of you are asking similar types of questions. And so the author of Hebrews is coming along and he's reminding us, he's exhorting us that the Christian life is a journey. It's a path. This cross-bearing life is not the final thing. It's taking us somewhere. Where is it taking us? It's taking us behind the veil behind the curtain. And when we get there, what will we find? Will it be like the Wizard of Oz where you travel down the yellow brick road and you finally get to the land of Oz? You see the curtain, you look behind it, and it's just a short little man? Will you be disillusioned, discouraged? What is behind the curtain? Now, in order to do this, i got to do some teaching, all right? So i got to do some Old Testament teaching. And I think a lot of you would know this, right? Actually, I don't know why I made that assumption. Maybe a lot of you don't know this. In the Old Testament, when God met with his people, he met uh, them in a big tent called the Tabernacle. And it was later became a building called the Temple. But God would meet in this giant tent called the Tabernacle. And this Tabernacle was separated into different sections and different rooms. And at the heart of the Tabernacle was a place called the Most Holy Place. Right? Or the Holy of Holies. The Holy of, it just sounds like a place you shouldn't enter. The Holy of Holies. And so this is what Hebrews is calling the inner sanctuary. It was the room that was off limits for Everybody except for one person. Nobody could go there. Don't even look at it. Don't even think about going in. It was that holy. It was that protected. You know, for me growing up in, in a Korean home, uh, when my friends came over, they could go anywhere in the house but one room. Can't go to their parents' room. It's the holy of holies. <laughs> right? If someone goes in that room, someone's going to get struck dead. <laughs> the holy of holies. The place you cannot go, only one person can go in there. It was separated by a thick curtain. And in that room, Yahweh, the Lord, I am who I am, would descend upon the tent in a great glory cloud to meet with this high priest. Once a year, as this priest brought sacrifice, uh, or sacrificed animals for the people's sins. In, in, the, in the special, most holy of holy place. And so no one was allowed to enter into this place except for the high priest. Only he was allowed to enter on the day of atonement. And what we're told here is that the hope that we have that enters into the inner place behind the curtain means that those who have Christian hope, where are you going? That we are going behind the curtain. We are getting access to God himself. We are getting intimate access, personal access. The access that we are given in our hope is that we would know and we would see God in a much greater way than the Apostle John, who in the book of Revelation, right, got this grand vision of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, his hair glowing, his eyes like a flame of fire. We get better access than John in the Re in Revelation, get you know what we get better access than Isaiah gets. Isaiah six, when in the year that King Uzziah died, and he's standing there, and he sees the train of God's robe filling the temple, and he sees God's holiness, and he sees the seraphim, and he's so overwhelmed. He says, "Woe is me, a man of unclean lips!" So that we get better access than Isaiah 
does. I'm talking about, Hebrews is talking about a beholding the Lamb of God in his glory, seated on the throne, access into the throne room of grace, seated at the great banquet table of the king, seeing the train of his robe fill the temple, feeling the foundations of the earth shake at the sound of his voice, hearing the songs of the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty kind of access. That's where your hope is taking you. We're talking about running into his arms, calling him Abba Father, being drawn near, feeling his gentle hand wipe away every tear from our eye, preparing a room for us kind of access behind the curtain. This is the hope that we are being led to, that we are being taken to. Do you have this kind of hope? Well, let's talk about the second point, security of our hope. How can we be sure of this hope? How can I know for sure that God will take me there? And this is why he gives us verses 13 to 18. So in those verses, we learn that the security of our hope is based on two things. It's what the author calls, look at verse 17, um, or verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things. What are those two unchangeable things? Well, verse 13 says he's given us a promise. Verse 17 says that he's given us an oath. We got a promise and we got an oath. So your hope is secure. Why? Because God has promised it and he has sworn it. So look with me at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Meaning he swore on his own name. Now, have you ever been so serious about something, you're telling a story, you're saying a fact, and people just don't believe you? And it's so frustrating. And how do you get them to believe you? How do you plead your case? You have to swear on something. One time, I was hiking with a group of friends. We get to this clearing, and we see a little baby cub come up. I got my phone. And this one friend of mine, God bless his dumb soul, <laughs> walks over to the baby cub and starts touching. And then we hear rustling. <laughs> Now comes Mama Bear. She's not happy. So Mama Bear turns to us and starts charging. I know that I cannot outrun <laughs> Mama Bear. I don't know what came over me. I really believe that it was the same strength that Samson had. <laughs> I punched mom bear red in the nose. I punched a bear <laughs> in the nose. Do you believe me? I'm just curious now. Who believes me? I'm a bunch of haters. Who doesn't believe me? I swear. 
Now, I won't swear on, swear to God. I won't swear on the Bible. I won't swear on my mother's grave. I swear. In the mighty name of Andrew Kemp. <laughs> I swear that happened. And then when I woke up, I dream <laughs> in my life. <laughs> you can't swear on yourself. I mean, if I plead, if I really said, I swear to God, I swear on the Bible, I swear on my mother's grave, I think I would win you over. One day I say, I swear on Andrew Kim, you go, oh, well, that means nothing. <laughs> that means nothing. You see, we can't swear on ourselves. We're not allowed to do that. But God can. God can swear on himself. You see, look again at verse 13. He says, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God says, you know my promise is true because I'm the one making the promise. In fact, for God to make a promise and swear on anything else would be inconsistent. Why? Because there is no higher name to which God can appeal. As soon as he does, then you know he's not true. He's not God. You see, God is not like you and me who makes and breaks promises. We are promise breakers by nature. We break promises. We all are. Right, it's really interesting. In verse 15, it describes uh, Abraham this way. It says, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, waiting for God's promise to, to, to take place. And, and I just think, you know, how many times have we patiently waited for, for someone to come through with their promise and they failed us? And how many times have people patiently waited with us when we said we would do something? We said we would be there. We said we would, you know, uh, whatever, commit to something. And we didn't do it. By nature, we are promise breakers. But God alone is faithful to his promise. And so to prove that, the author takes us back to Abraham. He takes us back thousands of years to remind us of who God is and what God did. And God's coming along and he's saying, listen, I'm the promise maker. I'm the promise keeper. Why? Because I'm God. What else do you want from me? How, can, how else can I show you that I am the promise keeper? I am swearing on myself and there is no greater name by which I can swear on. God's saying, I'm not like you. I'm not like your friends, your parents, your co-workers, your classmates, your, your children. When I swear on my own name, I keep every promise. And so if you go back as far as the first promise given in Genesis 3.15, that God himself would send the offspring of Eve to come and to crush the head of the serpent, God says, I would keep even that promise. God says, I made this promise to crush the head of the serpent. And if it even requires me sending my one and only son and slaying him on the cross, I will do that to keep my promise. Friends, and he has. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. The security of our hope is in God. And, he and we're told in verse 18, this is just one of the, you should underline this. Verse 18, where it just says right there, it is impossible for God to lie. Actually, do you believe that? It is impossible for God to lie. He secures your hope with his promise and his Oh, and he says, I'm grounding it on my name, on my reputation. Those of you who have young kids, when you tell your kid, hey, 
Not now. I'll give it to you later. And they don't, they don't understand that. And they say, no, I want it now. And you say, not now, later. And, and how do you make that promise? You know, we all know this as kids. What do you do? You do the pinky promise. The pinky promise. Pinky promise has its origins in the Susan Vassal Hittite Treaty, Treaty in the Ancient Near East. Right? You know that. You're really talking. You're spoken tongues. Uh, <laughs> in Genesis 15, when God makes this promise to Abraham, this covenant, what does he do? He, he splits the animals, right? And the smoking firepot goes through. And in that ancient times, the covenant was basically saying, you know, if I fail to keep this covenant, may I be cut apart, may I be punished like these animals. And if you remember, it's only God who goes through it, right? Abraham falls into deep sleep, so God is making that promise. And I'm that faithful, my promise. You know, the pinky promise, same thing. You know, the origin of the pinky promise, you make a pinky promise. Why the pinky promise? You're saying that if I break this promise, may you cut off my pinky. But God comes down and he makes a pinky promise to us. I'm faithful. I'm swearing on my name. And if you ever doubt that, then what do you need to do? You just need to look back at the cross. Where there was more than just a pinky cut off. The Son of Man slain for us. God covenants with you. He swears on himself. He pinky promises with you. That your hope is secure in him. Well, how does this hope work? This is our third point. The anchor of the soul. The anchor of the soul. Let's go back to verse 19. Now, here I think we need to pay close attention to the text. We have this. What is this? This refers to our hope. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, some of you, if I say, what's the anchor of your soul? I think, because we all know the song Cornerstone, we go, Jesus is the anchor of the soul. Right? That just kind of makes sense. Jesus is my anchor. But if you actually look at the text and you slow down, I don't think that's what it's saying. I think he's saying, we have this referring to what? Referring to our hope. What's the anchor of your soul? The hope is the anchor of your soul. The hope is the anchor. Now, that word anchor, it's only used three other times in the entire New Testament. And the three other times it's used is used in the the story in Acts 27, right? Now, in this story, so Paul is sailing on a boat to Rome. And all of a sudden, there's this great storm, and everybody on it is so afraid that, you know, because the winds will push the boat, it'll hit a rock, and everyone will be uh, shipwrecked. So what, is, what do they do? In, in Acts 27, 29, it tells us that they let down four anchors from the stern, and they prayed for day to come. Right? This is what an anchor does. In the midst of the storm, the anchor grounds you, the anchor secures you, the anchor protects you. What is the anchor of your soul? What are you putting your trust in? What keeps you afloat in the midst of light storms? What protects you from being smashed up against the rocks of hardship and disappointment? Right? In those moments when, 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 when tempests surprise you and, and the tornado catches you in its eye and the, and the typhoon of life and suffering seems to crash down upon us, what anchors your soul? And is this anger that you have sure and steadfast? You know, in this life, you will pass through storms. There are so many unwelcome guests. Death, disease, depression, disappointments, distress. They all fall upon us. They will fall upon us. What anchors your soul? What do you let down to firmly plant yourself? What do you look for shelter in? 
Because God is saying that he's going to offer, that he offers to us a sure and steadfast hope, this massive anchor. But of course, the reality of that one hymn is true, isn't it? We are prone to wonder, to leave the anchor that God provides, to leave aside the hope that he gives. And so when we don't trust in the hope God gives as our anchor, the hope that will take us behind the inner place, behind the curtain, what are those things that, that, that we are looking to to get us through the storm, to get us through the hardship, to get us through this suffering season? And I, I think a lot of us try to deal with this in so many different ways. I talked about one uh, earlier today. I think it's a great enemy of biblical hope. It's uh, earthly optimism. Uh, this, this optimistic spirit, it masquerades as hope, but, but it doesn't have any of the certainty of hope. Because all optimism does is it, it, it doesn't change any reality. It just changes your perception, but you're doomed either way. Others of you, you know, what do you find your anchor and your hope in? You, you find it in, in the bottom of a bottle. You find it in a pill. A drug that helps escape, helps you forget things, things, that, things that numb you enough so you don't have to experience and actually go through whatever tough time you're in. You're desensitized to reality, and we escape in that. We find our anchors in those things. Now, some of you are saying, well, I don't do that. I'm a moral person. Well, yeah, maybe you don't do those drugs. Maybe you don't find it in the bottom of a bottle, but you find it in video games or binging on Netflix, all resulting in the same thing, casting aside the anchor of hope that God gives and dulling yourself to the reality of things around you. Escape. See, any of these other things, any of these other anchors, they provide no true security. You may believe in your heart, or in your head, in your mind, that God is your anchor, that he, that, that, that he provides the right anchor, but in your heart, you believe something entirely differently. So we all self-counsel. We all counsel ourselves, right? Like, when all hell breaks loose in your life, when you are not on the mountain peak, but you are in the valley, when you are in the pit, how do you counsel yourself? What do you tell yourself? How are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Yeah, you know, I, uh, it, it saddens me when uh, I'm on social media and, uh, you know, social media, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I think a lot of people, you know, you know I, I, I think people say, oh, social media really presents the best, best part of yourself, you know. Um, but, but I've seen people be really open and honest on social media. And oftentimes, you know, it's really sad when, when I see Christians do it and the type of, uh, of ways that they uh, counsel themselves and the way they preach the gospel to themselves. It, it's really just through this kind of optimistic, come on, you know, you're, you're better than this, and you can just kind of get your teeth and get through it. Right? You know, one thing that, uh, you guys ever watched that one Rocky movie? It's the awful one. Uh, I don't know what it is, like four or something. Um, but the Rocky, oh, he, he has a son. Rocky Balboa has a son. And he's talking to his son, and, and this is what he says. He, he says, uh, he says, uh, I can't do the voice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I always find that I can't do it. Uh, he, he says, you, 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 uh, you, me, or nobody is going to 
hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you're hit. It's about how hard you get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. And to, and to be honest, I think this kind of stuff gets people pumped up. Right? Like, it's that kind of self-motivation you get. Like, come at me. So it's not about how hard I'm hit. It's about how much I can get up and how I can move forward. And, and, it's, and it's delusional to really trust in these things. Um, yeah, yeah, my, okay, uh, my relationships are all tangled up. Yeah, my family's struggling financially. Yeah, I just got dumped. Yeah, I just got uh, diagnosed with this illness. But yeah, my life, come at me. I'm stronger than this. I mean, you know how self-centered that is? How self-delusional that is? You know, when I was in, um, I took this math course. Um, if, you're, if you're struggling in school, let this encourage you. Uh, I took this class, this math course, and uh, I might have the 30%. Um, um, and, and, I was, and I was just struggling so, so, so hard in this class. And the only thing that got me through this class is the professor had this uh, poster uh, in the room. Uh, it was a quote by Thomas Edison, and it said, uh, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Right? And I'm pretty sure he put it up there for me. Um, but what an inspiring quote. It really got me through that class. And yeah, you know, and then I brought home my report cards and my friends said, what did you get? And I said, well, let me put it this way. About 10,000 people that don't work. Um, but you know, like, what, are, what are these kinds of quotes doing? They're, they're telling you just think positively and, you know, we're in a real danger, and that's what we counsel, how we counsel ourselves, and that's what we preach to ourselves, assuring ourselves to you know, optimism and positive thinking, or even to some kind of uh, karmic value system that the universe will balance itself out. Right? And this is where preachers fall into big trouble, right? Prosperity gospel people, right? It's not prosperity gospel, it's poison gospel. When people who come along and they say something like, you know, bad stuff is happening now, hey, it'll get better because God just has blessings waiting for you. Something great will come, and, and yeah, so, okay, sure, you're suffering through something now, but, you know, if you name it, you'll claim it, right? If you profess it, you'll possess it, or something like that, right? If you believe it, you'll receive it, right? Like that. That was a prosperity gospel in the life. You know, the reality is that we really need a different kind of anchor. We need a different kind of anchor. We need one that fights against you know, these kinds of, I don't even know what to call them, false gospels, false ways of encouragement. Um, you know, I, I'll let you share one more. Um, does anyone here like Kelly Clarkson? I love Kelly Clarkson. I had the biggest crush on her. And uh, I don't know why I said that, but... Uh, <laughs> She uh, she had the song that was so catchy. I would always sing it until one day I actually like look at it. She considered what I was singing, and I realized just you know the song "Stronger," right? You know you know the chorus. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stand a little taller. What doesn't kill you makes a fighter. Footsteps even lighter. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stronger. <laughs> Just me, <laughs> myself, and I. I'm sorry, Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> That's wrong. 
we live in an age where that's kind of what we're teaching ourselves, right? Like, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And, you know, I'm going to come out on the other end of this more, you know, powerful. And, well, is that an anchor? Sure, it's an anchor. Is it sure and steadfast? No, not at all. You know, offering to somebody who's in the midst of suffering through storms and, and, and trials, and saying something like, well, you know what, if this doesn't kill you, it's only going to make you stronger in the end. You know what that's like? That's like offering a paper clip as an anchor tied to, uh, tied to yarn and giving it to a ship that's out in the middle of the Pacific and saying, here's your anchor. And what God offers to you and me is an anchor of the soul that is unbreakable and unshakable and immovable because it is sure, steadfast, and it is strong. The anger that God gives us doesn't dangle over the side of the ship falling into the deep abyss, hoping, hoping with great uncertainty to catch on to something. But the anger that God gives us, now listen, the anger that God gives us, it reaches up into heaven. It reaches up into heaven. It goes behind the curtain and it latches itself onto the altar of God. The anger that God gives doesn't dangle freely, but it latches on, it grips to the altar tightly. The anger that God gives us, the anger of the soul, makes us resilient like a fortified battleship, ready to withstand even the perfect storm. Not being a small little dinghy tossed to and fro by the simple changing of tides. This anger that the Bible talks about, you need to get this anchor. You need to be secured with this kind of hope. But the question is, where do you get it? How do you get it? I'll tell you where. And this is the good news. Jesus, our forerunner. Jesus, our forerunner. Verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, let me break this down for you. Forerunner, this word forerunner is a nautical term that aligns with the anchor imagery. Forerunner is a nautical term. This word forerunner never appears ever again in the Bible. It only appears once, and this is the only occurrence. And in this occurrence, Jesus is called a forerunner. Why? What does a forerunner do? Now, in the ancient Greek harbors, you got the harbor, right, where the ships come and the ships dock. you got the harbor and these... You got the sea here, the harbor here, and the ships are coming in. But there are these sandbars in between the harbor and the sea. These sandbars, these large stretches of, of these big, big, big amounts of, of sand, so that when the tide was too low, there was no way that the ship could come into the harbor because it would hit against the sandbars. And so the ships had to wait in the sea until the tide got high so it could go over the sandbar and dock in the harbor. And so what they did is, if the ship was staying out in sea as it was waiting, it would, keep, it would be blown away. And so what would happen is, they would send these lighter, smaller vessels called forerunners. And these forerunners would go to the ship, they would take the anchor of the ship, they would go back into the harbor, and they would drop the anchor so that the ship was safe and secure from the storms. And the entrance of the small vessel into the harbor, the forerunner carrying the ship's anchor, was the pledge that when the high tide came, the ship would safely enter into the harbor when the tide was full. 
And so one commentator writes, and because Christ, our forerunner, has entered heaven itself, having torn asunder everything that separates the redeemed sinner from the very presence of God, he himself, Christ himself, is the pledge that we too shall one day enter the harbor of our souls in the very presence of God in the new Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. You see, friends, Jesus is the forerunner because although you are here in this life and we are going through a lot, I don't know what you're going through. I'm sure you've go, you're going through a lot or you've gone through a lot or if you haven't, I'm sorry to tell you, you will go through a lot that even if we are lost here and we feel like we are out at sea with nothing to do, Jesus Christ takes the anchor in the soul. He ascends into heaven. He goes behind the curtain and he drops your anchor there, promising you, assuring you that one day you too will dock in the Horror of the presence of God. This is the certainty, the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. See, when Jesus ascends into heaven, when he, when he goes back behind the curtain, he doesn't take that anchor and he doesn't staple it. He doesn't paper clip it. He doesn't use tape. But he drives that anchor into the altar behind the curtain with nails that pierce his hands. He does this as your high priest. He goes behind the curtain as the high priest would. But he doesn't go in the, as a high priest only offering a sacrifice for you, but he goes as the high priest being the sacrifice for you. He goes behind the curtain, why? So that one day you can go behind the curtain. He gives you entrance where you had no entrance. He gives you access when you had no access. He gives you the right to go where you had no right to go. How does he do this? It's in Matthew 27, as Jesus Christ is being crucified first, and Matthew writes, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As Jesus Christ on the cross had his body torn, so too the veil was torn. And as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he was torn from the Father, he reconciled and mended you and the Father. He stitched us back together. This is the guaranteed promise and hope that keeps us. You know, in the meantime, we are still sojourning. We are still walking this world. We withstand every temptation, every trial, every tempest, every, every tornado. We withstand it all because our anchor is secured firmly in heaven, ripped the bloodstained hand of Jesus Christ. You know, life throws storms, things get chaotic, cyclone comes through, your life just isn't a mess, it's in disarray. But our hope is in Jesus, the anchor of our soul, an anchor of hope who fastens one end securely to the ship of your soul, and as your forerunner, he goes into heaven and he drops it behind the curtain. And let me end with this. Robert uh, uh, Louis Dabney, he was a, uh, he, he was a famous uh, Presbyterian uh, pastor and theologian hundred years ago. Um, and he was sick, and, and he knew he was near death, and so he wrote to his friend, Vaughn. Uh, basically, he wrote to his friend wondering, um, 
know, whether he had um, a strong enough faith to face his impending death, right? He was contemplating that he knew his brother, Vaughn. You know, I don't, I'm not sure if my faith is strong enough to face this. And this is what his friend Vaughn replied. May God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your faith, but to grasp the great ground of confidence, Christ, and all his work and all his personal fitness to be a sinner's refuge. Faith is only an eye to see him. You see, when you are uncertain, when you doubt, when you stumble, don't look to the strength of your faith, but look to the confidence of Christ as your forerunner. The one who has anchored your soul in heaven, and by grace he will draw you to himself. And in that we rest in the certainty of God's promise. Amen? Amen. Amen. Pray with me.